Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Unfounded Podcast. My name is Christopher Sage, and I am your host. I'm glad to be back on here, and luckily we don't have any buzzing going on, at least on my end, like we did to end last episode. Sorry about that. Um, Thankfully, it didn't come through on your end, so uh, the last bit of the episode you could at least hear me talk. Uh, But it was pretty interesting little turn of events there to end the episode, um, right after explaining kind of my experience of divine grace and uh, giving you an example of that. I had a really odd uh, technical kind of difficulty that I experienced that in the moment I meant to kind of say I thought was kind of something trying to make itself known, but um, didn't quite uh, find the words to say it in the moment. But listening back to it, I could really tell and feel that there was something trying to make itself known in that time. Um, That's kind of how it works. Synchronicity, all of that. Uh, Something you become more aware of as you start to wake up. But uh, there's energies around you that can communicate to you, and they use basically the world to do that. And... um, you can kind of hear my confusion at the end of that episode. Why would it happen that way? Um, <clears throat> it's a hard question to answer because I don't really know exactly. But what I've come to kind of think is that it was because of something in, um, going on with what I had prepared that wasn't appropriate for the podcast and wasn't necessary. So I'm going to kind of leave most of that episode where it was, um, but I do like the, uh, still like the idea of awakening because it's something I'm still going through and experiencing. And I feel it's important to document that. And that's <clears throat> for those of you just joining or who have been listening for a while. That's what this podcast is, a documentation of the awakening process. Um, and also, uh, a place where you can question the things that you call founded inside yourself and in the world. Um, so you can do that without fear of judgment from other people, uh, and, possibly learn a little bit about yourself and the universe. So what I'm going to try to do today to do that is um, <clears throat> focus on one word like I usually do, one one idea. Uh, but I also have a quote that I pulled up by C.S. Lewis that I'd like to go over too to kind of get us into things. And I think um, they might fit nicely. I'm not sure, but we'll see where it goes. C.S. Lewis is a very interesting figure. Um, <clears throat> he's a philosopher, but also kind of a very, uh, you know, he was he's a theologian of sorts too. And so you get a very interesting mix of Christian, uh, Christian uh, viewpoints and ideas mixed with um, his philosophy. Uh, it's very compelling. I've always found C.S. Lewis very compelling. Uh, I even started to sign a lot of my things that a lot of my projects, C.S. Turner for a while, just because I kind of admire uh, his writing, even though I haven't read a lot of it, oddly enough. But um, I guess you'll find that at times throughout your life. There's certain individuals that maybe you don't even engage with yet that much, but you kind of know you will at some point uh, and you find a certain resonance with a certain interest in or attraction to. Anyway, uh, C.S. Lewis, this quote goes, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand that what he is doing, 
is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And that is by C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. You can see um, in that quote that C.S. Lewis is a very uh, kind of poetic figure. Um, He is a way with narrative. And I find it interesting in that quote that uh, I think it speaks of the awakening process uh, in a creative way and helps us kind of imagine what it feels like um, when we start to wake up or we start to go through kind of, uh, I don't know, what what you'd call a, a difficult time in your life. And for C.S. Lewis, uh, someone who, you know, believes in Christianity, uh, that feels like God is trying to build a house other than the one that he's uh, planning on putting up. Kind of the ultimate point being, you know, you're in a house and you're going to get better than you ever wished for. Not that really being the ultimate point, but there's a lot in this. <clears throat> Apologies for the throat clearing. I, I drink coffee quite a bit with creamer, and it tends to not be the best thing right before a podcast, but I, I don't always know when I'm going to come on here, so um, we'll try to roll with it. The word that, or the idea I wanted to talk about today is discontent. And so I'm going to try to focus on this quote from that perspective. Um, first off, let's define it. What does discontent mean? It means, and this is off of Google, uh, Microsoft Bing, actually. Um, discontent means a lack of contentment, dissatisfaction with one's circumstances. And the other definition is a person who is dissatisfied, typically with the prevailing social or political situation. And I, I went ahead a little bit and kind of tried to find a couple other definitions. Um, and they're somewhat helpful. A restless desire or craving for something someone does not have a malcontent to make discontented, dissatisfied, displeased as if it's a verb, obviously. The point that I'm trying to get to is um, discontent is kind of that feeling of um, not feeling satisfied, obviously. Dissatisfaction is the easiest way to define it, I guess. Um, But I think it's deeper than that. Um, There's a little bit of jealousy or envy uh, built into it too. Maybe more of a jealousy towards um, one's idea of the life they should have. I think that's the way to put it. When you feel jealous of a life that you've never seen, but one that you feel that you deserve, 
uh, you feel discontent. And I think if we go back to our, our definition, um, or excuse me, our, our quote, you can see in this, uh, as he kind of describes um, the process of building a house and imagining yourself as a living house, um, and you're kind of working with God or the divine to build this thing. But as the process goes on, there's things that are out of your control. Things that maybe initially are agreed upon that are out of your control. In this case, it'd be there's a lot of stuff in your life that you know you're never going to be able to kind of fully control or fully influence in the way you'd like to, at least. So we kind of agree with the universe or the divine in those moments. Hey, this isn't under my purview. I'm going to let you take care of this. Whether we do that actively or inactively by kind of ignoring those things. But as it goes on, the things that we plan to change in our lives, the things that we want to give up... um, you know, those start to go away. We confront those demons, you know. But the further you go down that rabbit hole, the more you'll recognize that you don't really want to give up everything. You're willing to kind of give up so much, and then you kind of stop, and you get stuck. You plateau to a certain degree, similar to when you work out. It's hard to keep yourself motivated. And so... There's a point in which the universe um, kind of puts situations in front of you that force you to choose. If you fail to make the choice to live the life that you, your higher self wants, I guess is the best way to put it, that you truly want, if you're going against yourself in that way, well, what would you do but kind of sabotage, make yourself feel bad? If you were your higher self, I guess, is the way I'm putting it. So God, in this sense, starts to change things, starts to kind of move things, bits of your life, pieces that you don't really expect to be moved, and that hurts, like, really badly. Maybe it's in the form of a project you've worked on really hard. Maybe it fails. Maybe it's an idea you've had that you realize you're never going to do. Maybe it's something that you... um, Maybe it's a a relationship that fails. Maybe it's... um, you lose your job. Maybe it's you lose your house. It could be anything. Maybe it's all of those things. Maybe it's some of those things. Maybe it's you go broke, you know. And each of those things hurts. But all of them lead you to the same point. A foundation. Something to build on. And so that foundation is usually what people would describe as like a a pit, being in a dark place. That's how I've described it. Seeing the foundation is kind of seeing no walls around you. And that's scary. There's no roof over your head. And it's in those moments that you're asked to believe that there's going to be walls. You know? There's, there's going to be a roof over your head. 
Alan Watts used to say his favorite quote from Jesus or the Bible um, itself is one that's not often used. And I, I'll try to parap- I'll try to remember it, but I'm definitely paraphrasing it here. But it's something like, "If God so clothed the grass of the fields, will He not so clothe you, faithless ones?" Something like that. And so it's like in those moments when you don't see, you know, like grass, you know, you don't have a roof over your head. You don't believe that um, you actually literally don't have any control to change your situation. You're asked to have faith like the blade of grass or the flower um, to be still, to trust that you need to set a foundation first. And sometimes you have to take down the walls. Sometimes the walls you had weren't properly built. Sometimes the insulation was bad, you know? Whatever it is. Whatever you didn't see that the divine did or does. Those are the areas that you're going to feel that abominable, as C.S. Lewis put it, pain. Um, I think Jordan Peterson and has described it before, and I think I usually say it this way. It's like the, the dead wood. It's the, the blaze of the fire <clears throat> as it catches all of that dead wood that's been piling up inside of you. And one of the things we don't like to admit about this world that we all share is that the external world really is a reflection of our internal world. You know, a lot of people are into like dream interpretation. It's not something I've really studied too much or looked into too much, but from what I understand right now with what I've been going through, I would, I would imagine or assume that the reason dream interpretation works to some degree is your subconscious is kind of a mirror of your living world but um, you know sometimes like a more literal mirror and sometimes more of a fictional depiction of it and in a similar way I think your your waking state is also a mirror of the physical world you know Um, not that your ego is shaped by what you see that's also true I think to some degree obviously but um, it has to do with like manifestation it's you get back what you put out kind of a thing right and recognizing that your external world is a reflection of you and how you feel about yourself um, is important uh, when you're going through any hard time because it gives you something to look at <clears throat> excuse me for constantly clearing my throat it annoys me when I'm listening back to my podcast so I hope it doesn't annoy you you know it it gives you something to focus on something to grab onto oddly enough if you sit in those dark places if you sit on the foundation with no walls you'll figure out eventually uh, where to start how to build frame you know it's like the the story of Noah or if you've ever ever seen Evan Almighty Um, it's a really funny movie it's a good one I recommend it it's good with the family, you know. Um, um, 
but me, Bethany, and our, and our boys were watching it probably a couple months ago. And one of the parts that hit me the most was how the whole time Evan's like really scared. You know what I mean? It's different than Bruce Almighty. And Evan Almighty, he's he has everything. You know, he, he's not wanting for anything. His life's already going well. And then all of a sudden he, he gets delivered like all of the slumber on his front lawn and a note and he runs into God, you know, tells him to build an ark and there's going to be a flood. But there's not much communication. And most of the time, you know, Bruce or excuse me, Evan is left kind of wondering and questioning, what am I supposed to do here? You know, I don't know how to build a boat. Um, but every time he gets to a point where he feels like he's going to give up or needs to, or there's no other option, he's either forced to or um, by like unforeseen circumstance that in the movie is shown as like divine intervention, which that's what I would describe as synchronicity. <clears throat> it's the way that you're directed, right? But he either gets directed that way or kind of by just a helping hand, you know, divine grace. I guess it'd be the other way to put it. And by the end of the movie, you know, everybody is doubting him, but, and even he, he himself is doubting himself because, you know, the rain comes and then goes and nothing happens, but he forgets about, and everybody forgets about the lake and the dam that wasn't built right. You know, this man-made errors kind of like Tower of Babel. Um, yeah. There's like elements of the Tower of Babel in that, but that idea at least, but that this dam breaks and the water floods everything, you know, and, and it's what, you know, necessitates the ark and all the animals. And... Noah floats all the way up to, I believe, like the Capitol building, you know, where uh, his boss, you know, the, the, um, um, name fails me, the position fails me right now, but the head congressman, right, um, <laughs> where they are and, and, you know, it culminates with this kind of, uh, ultimate vindication of Evan's faith, you know, the mansion that you never saw coming. And in that story, it's kind of funny because it's, it's not really even Evan going down to a foundation, right? He does, you know, but what I mean by that is he wasn't starting from like the pit. I think that's what most people assume. You know, you'll see somebody asking for change on the street corner. You'll see somebody lose their job that isn't you, maybe that you worked with and you'll be like, oh man, that's gotta be bad. Or... And I feel bad for them. Maybe we'll give them money. But if you think about kind of how they got there, people usually have this like default reaction. It's it's not always this, but you know, I'm overgeneralizing obviously, but it's something like um, they don't imagine what they were before. All of those faces that you see as you drive by, you know, it's a lot more since COVID, right? Who were they before they were that? Because it's scary to recognize that a lot of them could be and were you. You know? 
The point being, people don't just start in a pit or start with a foundation. You know, a lot of people like Bruce or excuse me, Evan um, have a lot going for them and then something unforeseen knocks their world down. And it's people have a hard time describing why that happens. Most people like to, you know, put the onus and the responsibility on the, on the individual. And I think that's the only thing logically you can do. But spiritually, I think there's maybe other explanations for that. <laughs> and you think the spiritual explanation is um, there's a certain pressure that can be placed on you at certain points in your life. We assume that we come here and uh, one, nobody's watching, right? This isn't important in that way. And so we go into the world thinking that we can kind of figure out what we want to do. You know, we get told, what do you want to do? Figure it out. And it's like, okay, I guess I'll get to imagine what I want my life to be. And that really is the process that you have to go about. But when it's placed to you in the manipulative ways that our society and kind of our um, communal parenting has uh, passed down, it, it, it doesn't work. And so we... You know, I, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there. It must have been something that wasn't... must be getting away from the topic here, but... We feel like people that are in those places just started there, and there wasn't anywhere they were, they started before that. And it's not always the case. Maybe it is sometimes. Um, even if you don't feel that way, if you recognize often that, you know, people may have just had bad luck. Maybe that's how you think about it. And you feel like you do imagine who they were before then. Um, I feel like there's a, uh, it's admirable stance or viewpoint to take, but it's not like it really is the truth either because it's it has like pity built in, <clears throat> which isn't what people need. Um, Oh, at least back where I was. The spiritual meaning of it, right? That people don't need um, to be pitied. Um, they don't need money. Um, what people need to what people need is to be seen, but not in like the physical way. People need that too. But every single human being that lives on this planet needs to be seen at a deep level, at a spiritual level, at a soul level. They need to be free in that way. And our modern world, with all of its bells and its whistles and its lights and its technology, has done a really shitty job. of teaching people how to be themselves. To wear themselves, their true selves in that way. You know, the movie The Joker is one of my favorites. Not because I like the dark aspects of it 
inherently or anything like that, just because I think there's a lot of depth to it. And I think it's one because the the paint, you know, the Joker wears on his face. One is a smile, right? The Joker is an inherently tragic and sad figure, which is there's comedy, dark comedy in that, right? But the mask, even though it's paint on the face, it's still a mask. <clears throat> and I think it's interesting that it is paint a lot of the time, except for maybe the beginning of the Dark Knight, right? Uh, because it's it's ma- a mask that's so close to the skin it is on the skin, right? It's not worn. It's kind of donned. It's it's uh, melded with in a weird way, right? I think that's meant to show something. You know, take the most recent Joker movie when he's putting on all the makeup. You know, it's meant to show the depth of the mask that we all wear and how it's meant to hide something underneath. That the Joker's mask <clears throat> quite literally was the clown in that sense. But, you know, if you can imagine yourself and what you do as a mask, you know, me, what I'm doing right now as a mask, you know, paint it, visualize it. What does it look like? And then imagine looking through it, that's what you're doing every day. Everything you tell yourself about yourself, everything that you want to be and everything that you hate about yourself, it all is a different decoration on that mask. Because it's all the thing that is opposed to you. In like a spatial sense. It's opposite of you. You know. I want to be happy. It implies that you, the thing you already are isn't. Which it is inherently. If it was allowed to be. You know? That's why you can wake up at any second. That's why they, they, they speak of, you know, like there being a possibility in, in Buddhism, you know, in Zen Buddhism, I think, that you, you, can, you can wake up instantaneously in a moment. You can relinquish all of the aspects of whatever, of this world and kind of go on and off into nirvana. At any moment, you can choose it. And it's that simple. The distinction that needs to be recognized between awakened and not awakened is that simple. Which they're onto something, I think, for sure. I've been influenced by Zen Buddhism quite a bit. Not to assume that I'm woke up. (laughs) But I think I understand what they mean. talk is to wear a mask the words you're using every single day were they were taught to you they were loaded with intent from the moment you were taught them you know I go over reading with uh, my boys and we go over the letters and the, the spelling and the speech how to pronounce it and oftentimes they ask questions and I Remember my young self asking the same question. Why is it this way? And always getting because, you know, these, these answers of because. And it's like, well, 
yeah, but who made it that way and why? That's the intent I speak of. There's whole languages that don't have words for physical things. There's no word, I think, in certain South American languages, like somewhat dead languages, I believe, but to describe things like snow, or maybe it's certain Pacific Islander languages. I'm not 100% certain, but there's, I know there's certain languages that don't experience snow. You know, they're, they're by geography, they, they didn't live in a region that would experience snow, so they didn't have a word to differentiate snow and rain. It was just a word for th- stuff that falls from the sky. So there's like kind of a, an example of like a, an obvious example of how words themselves can morph the way you view the world. Imagine what it would be like to look at the sky and not recognize or have a word to describe the difference between snow and, and rain. And even though it seems trivial, think about the ways and the words that we don't have to describe the way you feel every day. You know, it's think about the relationship you've had that you've maybe left and felt like you should have done something or should have said something or something was left undone. Why? And it's like, if you dig deep enough, you usually realize it's because a lot of times there wasn't words. There isn't words to describe what you feel. In the moments of kind of passion, I guess you'd describe it, and then af- the aftermath. There's no, there's no words. Um, there's no words for how abominably painful it can be to wake up how hard it can be to build the house, you know, and to watch it be torn down. There's no words for kind of in a similar way, the way it feels to love someone. That's why poetry focuses on it so much. It's like its favorite topic. Not just poetry, but art in general, (laughs) music, you know, painting, writing. We write thousands of words to try to describe what love is. People come from all over the world to look at a painting and try to figure out what a lady from the Renaissance period is thinking. I figure like the Mona Lisa. try to describe the haunting effect that the painting has on someone, everyone, so much so that they travel to it, you know? Why people become obsessed with fantasies together, Harry Potter, you know? Sells millions of copies all over the world, captures the minds of millions of children and kind of Spanish generations parents than like we are read those books to their children watch those movies with them share those fictions with them and kind of pull the morals 
the structure of life out of them, which is the purpose of our myths, our legends, our fantasies. That's what those are. That's what Harry Potter is, you know? We try to describe the world and what it means to live. And we look to metaphors, but nothing ever really does it right. Nothing ever really quite captures what it means to be alive. And if you ask the question why in that, it's like, well, you come to the point, well, it's not meant to be captured. It's meant to be experienced, right? The house isn't, isn't, isn't stand, supposed to stand forever. It's meant to be improved, worked on. You know, I have a background for any of you that have watched any of my live episodes that I used to do that I plan on doing again at some point. But it, it was like of a kind of a man's body being chiseled out of marble and the hand was holding the chisel of the man that's in the marble, you know, and the other hand was holding the hammer, kind of self-sculpting, which is what I think the process of life is all about in general what I think right now <laughs> the many times it cha has changed up until this point in my 30 years and the many times at times I'm, I'm sure it's going to change in the rest of my life he intends to come and live in it himself why would the universe help you would say because you're it you're it where else would the universe want to spend its time you feel like the center of it don't you doesn't it feel that way the way you view the world you look outside and you see everybody else talk, talk to you. And you drive around, maybe this is a better example, on the freeway, and it feels like your time frame is more important than every single other person's, even though there's thousands of other people. It's so easy to go back and forth, to feel bad about that going back and forth of in certain emotional time frames, feeling like I'm more important and my time frame is more important and speeding and swerving. And then other time frames, getting mad at other people doing the same thing. I often wonder how many people do that, just like I do. Everybody feels like they're the center of the universe because there's a fundamental truth in that that nobody understands. kind of the center of your own universe 
everything you see, everything the light touches, like the Lion King says, everything the light touches is yours. You make it. The stuff you think you control, the stuff you think you don't control. You manifest it. You don't get to choose when things happen. You don't get to control what you feel. You don't get to know beforehand. The influence that you have over the world that you see is undeniable. And recognizing that changes everything. Do you want to feel like you're out of control in this universe? I was, I was listening to a uh, interview on Joe Rogan. I hadn't listened to Joe Rogan in months, honestly. Disconnected from everything for a while. But uh, Steven Pinker was the person that was on. And it's an interesting interview. I haven't listened to the whole thing yet. But some of the topics they had, I found myself getting frustrated with Steven Pinker and I won't go too much into it because he's not here to defend himself obviously but I have a frustration in general with this assumption that rationality and the scientific method and approaching everything from a the same frame of mind the same perspective is the way that we uh, heal the world evolve and I think the reason it's so tricky for a lot of people, especially um, people that get into the scientific world itself as a profession or maybe in academia is because there is like fundamental truth in it. Like there is a singular like grand perspective that everybody can kind of align under. And that's kind of what I was just saying. You're it. But it doesn't mean that everybody has to think the same thing. It's actually the opposite of the point. Um, everybody, and, and not only that, but everybody should think the same way. There was this argument that Rogan, not argument, but this conversation that Rogan and him were having and Steven Pinker, and they were talking about rationality. And Steven Pinker was kind of arguing that rationality is kind of the dominant mindset, the dominant perspective, the way that everybody should view the world. And to approach a problem or anything really with a rational mindset is uh, the way to create a functioning society. And while I think up until this point, evolutionarily, you know, if we have to talk about it in those terms, he's probably right. There's some reason why we've evolved to view things in this way. Same reason why we evolved to kill off God in the way that Nietzsche described it. But there's also a reason why um, we're not supposed to stay static. Nothing does. You want as much variance as possible, as many perspectives as, as possible on this thing we call the universe and life. Like, you don't want one flashlight 
looking at itself? Where's the fun in that? You want thousands of flashlights at different positions, doing different things, shining different pulses and colors. And you want to see what it's like to be each one of them. You know, that's the idea of God. I'm becoming familiar with. You know, I think that's what it means to build a house that God intends to live in himself, for me at least. Just to kind of recognize that I'm no one in that body, in that sense. What I see, maybe even to a lot of sense, what I want, when I'm thinking I want this, it's not me. It's not mine. I am just present here. And I do what the thing people call Chris Turner does. Not because people describe me as a thing, as a certain type of thing, and because I want to impress them or make them right, prove them right. No, it's something like I'm here for a reason, just like you are. Chris Turner's here for a reason. And when Chris Turner allows himself to be who he is, I said Chris Sage at the beginning of this podcast, I'm kind of trying it on for size, guys, obviously, um, because it's a pseudonym that I use for other things that I'm going to be doing. So, um, But when I'm kind of talking to myself and I'm sorry. I want to be able to experience what I am to the fullest degree. Not what I thought I was up until this point. That's, I think, the point I was getting to, guys. I think that's the point of life in general. What could be a of higher purpose, like what would be a higher good than that to realize my fullest potential. You know, if I realize what I am spiritually and embody that, and I embody my most potent physical form, and I think that's why so many people have focused on the awakening process throughout history and described it in so many different ways. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, spirituality in general, paganism. Pretty much every, I mean, every religion that I could find or think of recognizes this process, and that's because I think it is the point. And if everybody needs to be a similar similar wavelength is that you're it. I am you, you am I. And I am no one. With that, guys, that's going to be the Unfounded Podcast for today. 
I want to thank you for joining me again. I hope you enjoyed last episode. We got through this one without any interruptions. Um, but we'll look for them. Uh... <laughs> again in the future and maybe try to enunciate a little bit more and look for some synchronicities 322 right now when I say that we can maybe end it with that and see what 322 means we haven't looked up an angel number in a while the angel number 322 is a message of encouragement from your guardian angels and ascended masters as well as the archangel Raphael they are encouraging you to maintain your faith in yourself and your abilities Trust that everything is unfolding according to the divine plan for your life. I'm getting ringing in my ears right now, guys. So, divine plan. I think that dovetails nicely with kind of the metaphor we were, looking, we were using of the house, right? Letting go of that control, being at the foundation point and recognizing that there's a plan foundation, a structure, a, a frame, a blueprint is the word I'm looking for that you already have in a certain sense. It's divine. That you'll find exactly when you need it. And the home you're going to build along with the divine is something that you couldn't imagine sitting on a slab of concrete. Don't focus on the finish line. Start working. And enjoy the process. Because that's all there is. Is now. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.